Well, exactly, exactly four years ago to this very day, I began uh, ministering here at Emmanuel Baptist, January 2nd, uh, 2018, according to math. That's how long I've been here. Uh, I left uh, working in education and academia uh, to move back here to Minnesota to join this church family. And it's been one of the best decisions uh, I think our family has ever made. And uh, on behalf of my family, I just want to say thank you to all of you. And thank you to God for the many blessings that, uh, that he's given us here over these four years. Stop it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so today it's a special treat to open God's Word with you on this first Sunday of a new year, right? Uh, today we will be looking at Psalm 109. If you have your Bibles with you, that's where we will be. And it's a psalm in which David is calling upon God to bring justice to his enemies. Uh, and reading through this psalm this week, I was reminded of a couple of sitcoms, actually, from my childhood. Uh, and when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have shows that would stream. It was long before that sort of a thing. Uh, but I did grow up in the, uh, in the age of UHF, right? Some of you are old enough to realize there's a difference between VHF and UHF. And, uh, and UHF, I remember there's this channel out of St. Cloud called KXLI. KXLI, K41, St. Cloud. And they played all kinds of reruns. So I grew up watching reruns, probably too many. My mom would get after me, but, uh, but I was stubborn in my love for television. And so I would watch a lot of uh, reruns. And some of my favorites were uh, Brady Bunch and Happy Days, but I could list many more. There was all kinds of stuff on K41. And sometimes these sitcoms could get a little bit strange. Uh, when the Brady Bunch went to Hawaii one time, you know, uh, and hung out with Don Ho, if you remember Don Ho and the tiny bubbles. Uh, but they ended up, the Brady Bunch ended up acquiring a cursed necklace that uh, caused all kinds of problems uh, for the Bradys. Greg was surfing, and he nearly died, you know, falling into coral or something. And there was Peter, who was on a bed, and I was almost bitten by a tarantula. Um, and uh, it was just strange to, and to see the Brady Bunch incorporate sort of magic uh, into their sitcom. Or what could even get weirder would be Happy Days, if you ever watched that show. I remember they had an episode where there was a witch who actually had it in for Fonzie, you know, Arthur Fonzarello. And uh, she, she had a voodoo doll. And whatever she did to the voodoo doll, you know, stabbing it or posing it, you know, it happened to, to poor Fonzie, you know, which was not cool, he would say. And as a kid, I just found these things strange, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of them. You know, it was, uh, it was outside of the usual. And I think it speaks to something in all of us. We wish that we could wave a wand or cast a spell or have a magic necklace where things would just be made right, where we could just skip to that. You know, if you want to lose some weight, abracadabra. Or if you want to make a little more money, you know, hocus pocus. Or perhaps you want your enemies to get it, alakazam. You know, that would be fun for us. We think that would be uh, a good thing. Uh, and throughout the Bible, we see, we see death and we see life. And there's always this movement from death to life. You know, it's the exile for the Israelites. And then it's the return from exile. It's the wandering in the wilderness. And then it's, it's making it to the promised land. 
it's darkness before dawn, or it's the crucifixion before the resurrection. And yet we want to skip. We want to skip that first step and go to the second. We seek a simple and easy path that avoids exile. We want to skip the wandering and the darkness and death. We want to get right to the good stuff. And of course, this doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. And it really doesn't fit with our experience either. <clears throat> so to that end, I thought we might take a look at a challenging psalm. Uh, as we face this cold and harsh new year, especially today, it's so cold. Um, you know, we left Cincinnati to move back to Minnesota. And I think it was in the 60s there on Christmas Day. Although it was in the 40s here, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, it's a cold and harsh new year. And uh, this psalm is a challenging psalm. And for some, it's, it's maybe the most uncomfortable psalm to read. Uh, you know, the Bible has all sorts of things within it. All of them are beneficial for us, for us but some of them can be sort of challenging to read. Uh, in Psalm 109, David calls upon the Lord to bring harm to his enemies. The psalm speaks of David's desire for God's justice to be brought upon his enemies. Uh, is David hoping for God to sort of break out the voodoo doll and let his enemies have it? Or as we face opposition, as we face difficulties, what should our attitude be? Where do we find rescue? Where do we find a solution to our problems? So let's look at Psalm 109, and we'll just look at the last five verses of the psalm together today. Psalm 109, verses 26 to 31. There David writes, Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your faithful love, so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. Though they curse, you will bless. Whenever they rise up, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace. They will wear the shame, their shame, like a cloak. I will fervently thank the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him in the presence of many, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. Now, these six verses come at the very end of Psalm 109. Uh, they close out the psalm. And they represent David's cry for deliverance or his plea for salvation. The first 25 verses, however, we find David crying out for justice against his opponents. And just to give you a sense for the, what comes before, let me read a bit for you in Psalm 109. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me. They speak against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May the strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. 
May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Oof, that's, uh, that's harsh. That's very challenging from David. And I would hate to be the object of that prayer uh, from David to God. And as Christians, what are we supposed to make of this? Right, this is in our Bible. It's in the book of Psalms. There's some commentators who say that Christians uh, should not engage in these kinds of prayers. Uh, that this was something for the old covenant. And we as people of the new covenant, we don't do this anymore. And there's other Christian commentators who say that there might be appropriate times for us to pray this way. How do we make sense of a psalm like this when we consider the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount when he says, pray, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? David was persecuted and he does not pray for his persecutors. He prays against them. Now, Scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, heart usually refers to your way of thinking. So David sort of thought he had a mind like God. He thought like God. And I think what David is calling out for is judgment upon those who do evil and who do not repent, who are fully committed to the destruction that they're engaged in. And the fact of the matter is, for all of us even, if we do not repent, we too will face this kind of judgment. David is calling out for divine justice and judgment upon those who oppose God, upon those who will not repent and turn from evil. Even though David was king of, of Israel, his life was not a bowl, a bowl full of cherries, uh, you might recall that on more than one occasion, David fled for his life from before King Saul. Saul wanted to kill him. As David faced many opponents, both inside and outside of his kingdom, uh, there were many times uh, people were seeking his failure and even his death. And so despite these dangers, what was David to do, Right? He was called to lead and defend and save his people. And when things looked deadly and bleak, what were his options? He couldn't go to Camp David, which would be great because that's his name, right? He could have his own Camp David in New England. He didn't go to Camp David and put his feet up in comfort and in safety. He had to face those dangers. And as he did so, he called out to the God of justice, the God who said that vengeance and retribution are mine. And I think we would do well to do as David did. When people, spoke, when people speak lies, when people treated him badly, when he was in danger, what did he do? He turned to the God of heaven, the king of the universe, and he begged for justice. So that brings us back to our passage. Let me read it once again for us. Help me, Lord, my God. Save me according to your faithful love so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. Though they... Uh, though they curse, you will bless. When they rise up, they will be put to shame. But your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace. They will wear their shame like a cloak. I will fervently thank the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him in the presence of many, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. Let's pray together. 
Father, as we look at this psalm and seek to learn from uh, your, your servant David, uh, I pray that you would be at work uh, in our hearts and in our minds, that you would do a good work uh, here within each one of us as we seek to know you more uh, so that we might make you known. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I think one of the first lessons that we can take away from a passage like this is that we should trust in who God is. Not just trusting in God, but trusting in who God is. Notice that in verse 26, David cries out for help from the Lord his God. He cries out that God might save him according, according to his faithful love. And this is one of the most remarkable aspects of Scripture and God. Uh, in other religions, the God or the gods that people worship, they're free to be fickle, right? Uh, once upon a time, I, 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 I taught at a college and I taught uh, mythology to, you know, to college students. And uh, I got to learn all sorts of things about the ancient Greeks and uh, the ancient uh, Norse. Uh, the ancient folks from the ancient Near East. Uh, and I really came to really appreciate Norse mythology. Of course, they're all sort of fun to read, uh, and you sort of understand how people view the world and what was important. Uh, but if you're a fan of the Marvel mo movies, you've learned some things about the Norse gods too. I see Charlie smiling. Yeah, good job, Charlie. Uh, and in Norse theology, Odin, is the, he's the chief god, right, for those guys. It was so important to Viking culture and to the cultures that they conquered that we named a day of our week after Odin, right? Some people don't realize that Wednesday has a D in it because it's named after Odin. It's Woden's Day. Uh, Odin's Day. Uh, and though Odin was the father of Thor and he was the most wise and the most powerful of the Norse gods, you couldn't trust that guy. Uh, you, couldn't, you could not appeal to the mercy uh, if you were an ancient Viking, you couldn't appeal to the mercy or the grace of Odin because he was fickle. And you were simply at his mercy. Whatever his whim was is what was going to happen to you. You might cry out to him for help, but that was a shot in the dark. And many religions are like this outside of Scripture. Right? The God that people worship is one that is fickle. Um, but that's not true with the God of Scripture. David here not only cries out to God, but he, he appeals to God's faithful love. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. Uh, it's got a little spit in the first letter. Chesed, it's where the word Hasidic comes from. And uh, chesed is sometimes translated as faithfulness or covenant loyalty or kindness. But this is what David's appealing to. He says, Lord, save me according to your kindness, your faithfulness. Because he knew that the God of the universe was faithful. He was faithful to his covenant. He was faithful to his people. He would not abandon them. And you, Christian, you're in the same position as David was. Your God has not forsaken you, despite the problems you might face. As you face people who might oppose you or speak ill of you, or you face challenges and dangers in life, it is good for us to cry out to God that he might act according to his faithfulness to us. Help me, Lord my God, save me according to your faithful love, so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. The second lesson that we might learn from this passage today is that we should glorify the author of salvation. Um, we're going to look at verse 27 again. This, 
I use this verse in both points. That's fair. We can do that, right? Uh, so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. Though they curse, you will bless. When they rise up, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. One of the greatest blessings and wonders of the Christian faith is that the God who we worship, he is at work in all things. In Romans 8.28, we read that those, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The good work that is being done within you, maybe even right now, is a work that God is doing within you. Coming to faith, walking with the Lord, doing the good works which the Lord has prepared for you, all these things are a work that the good Lord is doing within you. He is the author of salvation. Of course, we're blessed to participate in this good work, but he is the author. The Old Testament is filled with examples of this. Right When the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he made it very clear that it was the God of Israel who was emancipating the Israelites with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When the walls of Jericho fell, there was no credit given to anybody except for the God of Israel. When the Israelites were saved from the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, there was no one else to praise or to thank except for the God of Israel. And our response to the salvation of the Lord should be praise uh, we see it time and time again throughout Scripture, and it's only natural and good for us to lift up our hands and hearts with gratitude and joy and shout praise to the God of heaven, the creator of the universe. When has God delivered you? When has God saved you? What good work has he been doing within you? How has he changed your life? Reflecting on these things should drive us to praise. We were just in Buffalo uh, recently, uh, with Doyle and Linda Van Dyne, Stacy's folks. You, some of you might remember the Van Dynes. And uh, they love to play games, all kinds of card games. And I'm not much of a game kind of guy, but I try to learn and I try to play, begrudgingly, as my family would tell you. But I love playing Uno. I think Uno is just one of the best games ever. And because uh, I don't mind losing that Uno. And uh, I won. I won a game of Uno. It was so great. Yeah, everybody else lost, but I won. And when you win, what do you do? You know, you do one of these. You stick your arms up in the air in victory, right? And this is like a universal symbol that people do. You see it in the Olympics. Uh, you see it in card games. You see it in high school sporting events. People put their arms up in the air in victory. Blind people do this when they win in competitions, Right? It's like in our DNA somehow to make this pose when we have victory. And when the Lord does a work within us, evil is being conquered and good is winning. And we should make this praise. And there's a, a word in Hebrew for praise that has the word hand in it. Um, there's, it's yada. Yad is hand and yada is to praise. And it means you put your hands to heaven in praise of God for what he has done. And this should be our response when we reflect upon what God's done within us as we should praise, as David does. And of course, that's what the Psalms are. They're full of praise. 
um, and I can't read enough of them. The psalmist here teaches us that it's good to glorify, it's good to bring praise to God for the work he does. We read that the unrepentant curse and they find shame, but for David and the people of faith, they offer blessing and they find rejoicing. In a few minutes, we'll have an opportunity to sing praise once again uh, as a church family, and we will with the great hymn, It Is Well. Uh, so let's keep this in mind when that, when that time comes after communion, that our praise might be a response to the good work that, that God's doing within our lives. Uh, lastly, we can learn from this passage that the, the Lord defends his people from their accusers, even from the accuser. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace. They will wear their shame like a cloak. I will fervently thank the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him in the presence of many, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. So here David is using some of the same language that we saw in the beginning of this psalm. Here, at the end of the passage, he reverses the message. At the start of the, of, of the psalm, we read, For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, it says in verse 2. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I will give myself to prayer. At the start of the psalm, David is lamenting. He's in despair because he's surrounded by lies and accusations. But at the end of the psalm, he's filled with thanks and praise because at his right side, in his corner, is the God who defends and saves. The word for accuser used throughout this psalm is the Hebrew word Satan, right? From which we get the name Satan. And throughout Scripture, Satan is the one who stands against us, making accusations, calling for condemnation. In the book of Job, Satan appears in the heavenly court as the prosecuting attorney, making the case against the faith of Job. In the book of the prophet Zechariah, we see a striking parallel to our psalm here. I think I have that verse, that passage for you. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, we read, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Joshua, mentioned in this passage, was the high priest who was one of the leaders who helped the people return from Babylonian exile. And using the same phrase, Zechariah tells us that Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua. Joshua, the representative of Israel before God, the high priest. At the right hand, as we said, refers to the person who's in your corner, the person who defends you. So if you were standing in a heavenly court, uh, how would you like to have Satan as your defense team, right? 
we see in Zechariah 3, 3 that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. And we don't hear the actual accusation of Satan. But it could be referring to the judgment of exile. The Israelites were humbled by the destruction that came upon them from the Babylonians. Right? Maybe you've, you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament and that destruction. The Lord raised up the Babylonians in judgment against Israel. Perhaps Joshua's unclean state is reflective of this. Israel was guilty before God. Though they were guilty and worthy of judgment, how does the Lord speak to the accuser? The accuser is rebuked. The filthy garments are removed and Joshua is brought into good standing before the Lord. And this is a wonderful foreshadowing of the work of Christ. We too stand condemned before the Lord. If we were to appear in a heavenly court with Satan as our defense attorney, he would accuse us of sin. He would accuse us of falling short of God's righteousness. He would accuse us of missing the mark. And he would not be wrong. His accusations against us would be true. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But thankfully, like David and like the high priest Joshua, we have a God who comes to our defense. Though we are guilty and fallen, we have been plucked from the fire. Our filthy garments have been removed so that we might be reconciled to God. I'll close our message here today with a passage from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He writes, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. If you do not know the Savior, who will defend you when the day of judgment comes and you stand before the throne? At this point in history, we have the cross and we have the throne. Where will you bring your sins? Where will you bring your mistakes? It's good for us now to die to sin, that we might die now to sin, uh, to bring ourselves before the cross of Christ so that we do not carry our sins to the throne of God. The vision we see from Scripture, from the Old Testament and in the New, is a movement from death to life. David went through dark days and found rescue in God according to the faithfulness of God. In Zechariah, the Israelites had suffered in exile, but they were restored before God. Despite Satan's accusations, Christ faced crucifixion and death, but was raised again and now reigns in glory. We too face death. But let us die to sin and receive Christ as our advocate. That Christ would be at our right hand, in our corner, so that we might walk with him in newness of life. Let's pray together.